can turn to Luke chapter 8. We'll be in verses 4 through 15 this morning. We finished up the letter to the Ephesian church a few weeks back, and then Colin read to us the letter to the Ephesian church from the opening chapters of Revelation the week following, and last week Chad Scruggs preached to us about community from John's gospel, and for the rest of the summer we're going to spend our time in the parables of Jesus. There is plenty for us in the parables that Jesus told. They're almost inexhaustible as you go through them, so we'll spend a good bit of the remainder of the summer in Jesus' parables. Young Christians, young theologians, as Jesus tells this parable, I want you to listen to see where he talks about himself in the parable. What part does he play? What is his role in the parable? There are a couple of different ways you could answer. See if you can get at least one of them, but if you're really listening, you'll be able to get both of them. This is the gospel of Jesus told in a strange story, but it is the good news nonetheless. And when a great crowd was gathering and people from town to town came to him, he said in a parable, A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. And he said these things, and he called out to them, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it's been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. And then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing they fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, there are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they're choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil... They are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Let's pray. Now, Lord Jesus, we ask you to do what you've just said in the parable. Sow your word in our hearts, make them honest and good and believing, and bear fruit that doesn't stop to yield what Jesus would grow in us. And for all of these things, we will give you thanks, for each of them comes from you. We ask these things in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Would you be seated? Jennifer was out of town last week, and so I was left to take care of the kids and the house by myself, and I did all right. Everyone survived. The girls gave me fairly high marks for cooking. We cooked. 
I'll have you know, when I wasn't cooking, I spent my time doing dishes and laundry. There wasn't much time to spare after all of that. What I didn't do so well with was watering the lawn and the flower beds and the vegetable garden and the containers of herbs. It's not that I didn't try. I ran the sprinkler system endlessly, and when that wasn't enough, I pulled out hoses at full length and turned on spigots and doused everything with leaves or stems or petals. When neighborhood kids got in the way, I doused them too. And we lost some plants. We took some casualties. But I fought valiantly. It's just that I'm not very good at keeping green things alive. In this parable, though, Jesus doesn't have the problem of keeping things alive. It's the opposite. Death has trouble keeping things dead, according to what Jesus says in the parable. When Jesus told his parables, the crowds usually scratched their heads, and the disciples acted wizened and knowing. But they didn't know what he was talking about either. Because later, Jesus has to pull the disciples aside and answer their question. Why are you talking to us in parables? And in verse 10, Jesus helps them interpret the parables that he is going to spend the rest of his ministry telling. And he helps them interpret his parables, not just on paper, but more importantly, in the lives of people. And it's in verse 10 that he gives the key. It's a quote from the prophet Isaiah. And he doesn't say it in these words, but he does say, the parables make the secrets of the kingdom perfectly obvious to those in whom the kingdom of heaven is at work. And to those in whom the kingdom of heaven is not at work, to everyone else, the parables seem obviously batty. Simpleton stories with spiritual meanings, but they're evasive, and we don't get them. In other words, the parables show where people divide over the kingdom that Jesus rules with his salvation. Or to say it even more accurately, the parables show where the kingdom divides people. So if you're paying attention, at the end of the passage... When Jesus finishes the parable, he turns to the crowd and he says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And what Jesus is really saying is, You're the soils. And we're about to find out which of you is which. I've scattered the word of God among you, and whoever bears the fruit of it, whoever grows in the grace of God, visibly, obviously, you're the good soil." I'm not just telling you a story. I'm doing in you what I've just told among you. Now, since this is Jesus' first parable, it's the very first parable he ever told. It shows up as the first parable in each of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew, it's in chapter 13, and Mark, it's in chapter 4. You should read their versions of the parable at some point this week, too. And it gets a significant space in textual real estate in each of the Gospels. More verses are devoted to this parable than any other parable in the Synoptic Gospels. But because this is the first parable Jesus told, the disciples have never heard Jesus speak like this before. 
He has to teach them how to read his parables, how to hear his parables. And so he picks apart the meaning of this one, verses 11 through 15. The seed is the word of God. It's the proclamation that salvation has come for sinners by the grace of God in the person of the Son. And that word is spoken and sung and proclaimed from pulpits and it's read in Bibles and read off from computer screens. And here in Luke chapter 8, that word was proclaiming himself. There was a crowd of people and he stood in the middle of them and he proclaimed himself. And the unfortunate souls who happened to be those along the path, the ones so hard packed and sealed up tight that the seed can't dig down into them, can't enter them and sprout and grow in them. Those are the ones who hear the word of God's salvation, but they're bird picked. Satan comes and takes away the word from their hearts. They hear the good news and then they begin to ask all the usual questions. How can I believe this? This is a fairy tale. This isn't intellectually honest. It's not intellectually rigorous. And what will those who know me say if I become a Jesus follower? And the ones on the rock are those who when they hear the word receive it with joy, but they have no root. The root can't push beyond the rocks. They believe it for a while, but then there comes this time of testing, pressures, persecutions, the other Gospels say. And at those times, those hearers fall away. When their faith is shaken, it's pulled up by the roots and it's gone. And those who fall among the thorns are those who hear the good news, but as they go on their way, they're choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life. They have no room to love the gospel, that the righteous God loves unrighteous sinners and saves them into his righteousness because they love other things too much. They've fallen in love with the most convincing seducers there are. But the good soil, The good soil are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart. I know we trip over that description, but what Jesus means is they believe it. They believe it more than they believe anything else, more than they believe the birds and the rocks and the heat of the day and the thorns. And they stake their lives on the word and they do what it says, whether it makes sense to them or not, whether it's easy for them or not. They do what it says and the word of God in them doesn't lie dormant, it grows things. They they may be small things at first, but they're present and they're there and they grow to full strength and full stature. And and the word grows in them things that look like they've come right out of Jesus himself. That's what fruit is. It's the seed's essence that comes out of it in order to be consumed. And the root of the word fruit is actually from the verb to enjoy. The enjoyable essence of the seed, in other words. What the seed gives of itself to be enjoyed largely. Right about now, we're all taking measure of our own lives and our own hearts, and we're shifting in our seats a little bit, and we're wondering, which kind of soil am I? Parables are meant to make us nervous. 
are meant to make us damp and sweaty, at least for a bit. Jesus has us just where he wants us. Holy trickster that he is. But here's what makes the parables worth all the risk that's wrapped up in them. Here's what makes the parables safer, even though they're never entirely safe. In the parables, Jesus doesn't just whisper the secrets of the spiritual realms unfolding in our world. And in the parables... Jesus doesn't just write us into them like an expose of our hearts. The parables do those two things, but that's not all they do. The parables are much safer for us to engage in. Because Jesus lives all of his parables firsthand. Before he asks you to live in them, he lives in them. You might think that in this parable, Jesus is merely the sower, the seed thrower, but he's actually more. Jesus, in this parable, is the seed. He was the one thrown into the fruitless world to bring fruit out of it. He was the one thrown into a desert of sin to turn it into a garden of worship. Jesus is the one who was broken up and tilled. He was dug out and planted with a cross under heaps of human sin and heaven's judgment and the covenant of redemption, the heart of God determined to save sinners from themselves. And Jesus is the one who came out of the grave in the same way that crops unbury themselves from the earth more alive than they were as their former seedling selves. And when Jesus broke through the earth, He didn't come up like a sapling, tender and tentative. He came out like a full harvest. He came out like a windfall. There was too much of Him to simply ignore or sweep away. There was too much of Him to take in all at once. And He certainly couldn't just be buried again. And on top of all that, if you still need more, Jesus suffered all that a seed could suffer. Sown into the world, he fell on hard ground. Very few believe in him. Very few recognize him. And then the birds come to crack his husk and to break his will and to devour his heart under the cruel pressure of their beaks. Remember Satan running out into the wilderness to tempt Jesus for 40 days? To get him to sin and lose all of his right and his ability and power as the mediator, the redeemer of sinners. Satan goes out to the desert to get the word made flesh to doubt himself. And Jesus felt the scorching heat as life seeped from him on the cross. And he felt the rocks crowd his own roots to move to a shallower depth as he wrestled with the heart of God in the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember his question dripping with crimson sweat. Father, isn't there any other way to defeat sin? Can't you allow me to not drink this cup? 
And then his roots plunged eternally deep again as he concluded, not my will but yours. And he felt the choking of the thorns, the cares of life, all along the way as his own mother and brothers come to find him at Peter's house on one occasion while he's healing the sick and casting out demons. And his mother and brothers stand out in the streets and they call into him and say, stop this whole Messiah business and come home and quit embarrassing the family. And he felt the thorns when his own disciples kept trying to get him to do something other than what he actually came to do. We had it read to us from Mark's gospel this morning. Peter rebuking him. You're not going to die and rise again. No Messiah does that. You go in and defeat the Romans. And Jesus has to say, get behind me, Satan. And then there are the Pharisees at every turn challenging him on the law. It's his law for crying out loud. He wrote it. He gave it. He's the only one who's ever actually done it. But they still challenge him over and over and over again. Tried by Pilate, the high king of the universe, judged by a non-king, a governor of all things. Rejected by his people, by his creation. And through all of it, he must have had this excruciating desire to show himself right. You know how you get when you want to prove yourself right. What would it feel like if you actually were? And if Jesus is the seed and you're the soil... It means that it's his his own essence that he wants to bring out in you. Jesus the seed who suffered everything there is for the seed to suffer. Jesus the seed who bears the missing fruit. Jesus wants to bring his own essence, his own likeness out in you. Truth and goodness and forgiveness over vengeance. And a love that looks like dying. A love that looks like a willingness to die to all claims of elevating self. All claims of self-worship. And a passionate hatred of sin. A willingness to fight against sin inside of ourselves and all around us with all the strength available to us. And a deep desire for the striking beauties of righteousness alive in our own bodies. And an unrestrained joy for the comedy of grace overcoming the tragedy of guilt. And faith, a deep, settled confidence in what the Son says. In who the Son is. In what the Son does. The fruit that Jesus means to bear in you is the fruit that comes from Him. There are many meanings we could take from the parable, but the deepest point of the parable is this. Jesus can make you fruitful because he bore the fruit in himself first. Now at our house, when we actually grow something, it's a victory. And the girls come running in through the back door and they give us the farm report. They say something like, we have a cucumber. We have a tomato, and everybody has to drop everything and march out to the back to see what's grown. And usually, it's just this green bud. It's the makings of produce, but it's hardly a crop. 
And at this point, there's still a lot in question. Can the plant survive the heat? Can we water it enough and not too much? And can we keep the squirrels and the birds from getting to it before we do? And along the way, there have been all kinds of remedies offered for our plight. We've started to compost, but that takes a while. By the way, there's nothing romantic or magical about composting. It's just a long-term commitment to live with your own trash, I've decided. (laughs) And I have a buddy on the backside of the block who has a few llamas out at the family farm. And he tells me, well, you need is llama manure. And you want llama manure, I'm your guy. And I keep telling him, no thanks. It just seems like we're playing fast and loose with microbiology on that one. I'm not sure what lives in llama droppings, but I'm not ready to spread it on my vegetables. But in contrast to what we grow or try to grow, next door to us, our neighbor has a fig tree. I've told you about this fig tree before. And every year it puts out more and more fruit than the year before. And the comedy of it is nobody waters this thing. Nobody cares for it. Nobody nurses it in any way. It hangs over our driveway and this year the branches have been so full and heavy with fruit that they sagged over the driveway and they blocked it so that we couldn't get in or out. And two Saturdays ago, Riley Jane and I had to take rope and wood planks and rig up a kind of scaffold to hold the branches up. We had to put the tree in traction. It has so much fruit. I think When we hear Jesus tell us this parable, we say to ourselves, many of us, I'm the good soil. It's just that I'm not sure I'm all that fruitful. I'm not sure that there's much of any fruit that comes from me at all. And I think we see ourselves like the lonely tomato. The, the languishing cucumbers struggling on the vine. But if you believe the gospel, and if you believe that Jesus is at work in you with his gospel, then you are disobedient if you don't also believe that Jesus wants, out of his goodness, out of his grace, out of his glory, to make you the tree with branches so heavy with fruit that they have to be propped up. If you don't believe that that's what Jesus wants to do with you, you're disobedient and you have to repent. And why is it that we're so often so fruitless? I think we're fruitless because we believe that the enemies of the gospel are more determined to snuff it out in us then Jesus the seed is determined to grow his essence, his fruit in us. Think now. What does your theology tell you? Who is more determined, Jesus or his enemies? You need a hint? Jesus came He was sown in the incarnation. He was planted in the crucifixion and harvested in the resurrection. And his enemies desperately tried to wipe it all out. Who is more determined, do you think? What you believe on this question is the difference between growing nothing or growing very little or growing the yield of a hundredfold 
100 times what was planted. A limitless crop, a crop that never runs out, as Luke tells it. Why, why are we so fruitless? Because, in spite of all of our good theology, we live by a very bad theology, and all of our bad theology turns into bad practice. We're so often fruitless because we believe the gospel is fruit that bruises and spoils and rots easily. It's fragile and it can't stand up to the birds and the rocks and the thorns. That at the first sight of trouble, the gospel withers and withdraws and retreats. But we've chosen to read Luke's version of this parable. Nobody ever teaches this parable from Luke's version. We've chosen Luke's version of this parable because of the final word he uses in the last verse. Patience. You'll bear fruit with patience. That's how it comes. Fruit comes slowly over time with stubbornness and persistence and perseverance through difficulty. It's interesting that Jesus doesn't tell the parable as one-dimensionally as we like to read it. And he does not say that if you're the good soil, you won't have to fight the birds, and you won't have to put up with the scorching heat, and you won't face the rocks or the thorns. He simply says that he'll grow his fruit in us anyway. And the produce of the seed in the parable is presented as much stronger than the thieves and the saboteurs and the vandals. The reality is, true gospel fruit is too dense and too heavy for the birds to carry away. The reality is, true gospel fruit is more solid than rock. It's more permanent than stone cathedrals. True gospel fruit, when, it, when it's been grown in us, it's too late for the thorns to do anything about it. Thorns can't erase ripened, matured fruit. But now it's up to you. Which does your theology, to, which does your theology press you to believe is more lasting and durable? Is it sin and fear and guilt and unbelief? And all the fruits of death that they put out? Or is it the gospel of Jesus and all of its effects and aftershots? And the spreading fruit of his gospel? Why are we so often so fruitless? Uh, It's because we believe that the discomforts of gospel opposition in all of its forms spiritual and emotional and mental attacks and persecution and ridicule and, and rejection from, from family and friends and colleagues and co-workers and the cares of life, every idol of pleasure, every means to the good life that we devise for ourselves apart from what God has for us. The discomforts of gospel opposition are more convincing and more compelling to our hearts than the joy of growing gospel fruit. Here's the same thing, much more simply. We're so often so fruitless because we spend so much more energy complaining about the discomforts of gospel opposition than we spend rejoicing in the gospel fruit that Jesus 
is growing in us. But listen to how Jesus puts it in the parable. Jesus says that the heart and the life that He has prepared to fill with Himself, the good soil, the heart and the life that He has prepared in order to bear more of His own essence in, that heart, that life bears fruit no matter what. Joys outweigh pains in the gospel. Joys far outweigh pains in the gospel for those who believe. And if you really grasp this, true fruitfulness laughs at the army of hostilities. It goads them. True fruitfulness taunts the enemies. Send the birds. Let them come. Send clouds of them. Let the sky be black with them. Let it look like a scene from a a Hitchcock film. Send them on. See if they can take away what Jesus is growing in me. And good luck, they're going to need it. And let the crushing and crowding of rocks and stones and the pains of persecution, let them come by the truckload. The roots that Jesus has sent down from me are too deep. I'll grow up through a mountain of iron ore if I have to. And let the thorns stab and slash and cut me to ribbons. When I bleed, I'll bleed with the love and the peace of Jesus. And all of it will only make His fruit amplified and enlarged and sweeter and more lasting and satisfying. But which do you believe? That gospel opposition is more powerful because it's painful? Or that the fruit of Jesus is more potent because it's an undiminished joy that grows only more lush and lasting against suffering and hurt. You may not know it, but you actually believe one of them. And you may have to take the parable of Jesus and go home and wrestle and dig deep to find out which one you actually believe. You may have to change what you believe. Or you may have to live what you believe. Make your belief more load-bearing, more tested, more sturdy, more proven. In the ancient world, fruit trees were so valuable that during campaigns of war with marching foot soldiers and storming cavalries, all efforts, all attempts were made to spare whatever fruit trees were in the area. The armies could, could perpetrate all kinds of inhumanities against one another or the civilian populations that got in their way. But it was, was the worst of war crimes to do any damage to a fruit tree or to destroy it. But in the parable... Jesus is telling you that the war you live in has no such ethical code and no one is going to give you that much room. Jesus is telling you in this parable that the enemies of his kingdom want to destroy precisely what is most valuable in you, precisely what is most valuable in the universe that's being redeemed. And that is the fruit of his gospel. The parable also says that from his own essence and from his own strength, 
Jesus will grow his unstoppable fruit in you. And your part is simple. You don't have to worry for the destroyers. That's not your place. And you don't even have to worry for producing the fruit in yourselves. Not your place either. You're to hold on to him, Jesus, the fruit-bearing seed in your hearts with patience. You're to believe, in other words. You're to be filled with more of his fruit, more and more and more of it, so much of it, that it looks wasteful. And you're to enjoy it. No matter what. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We have believed that your enemies are stronger than you are and insistently you tell us Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. The enemies cannot win. Too often and for too long we have given in to them. We've allowed the attacks of the enemy and the persecutions of friends and loved ones and neighbors and the cares of pleasures and life to crowd out your gospel in us and make it small. But your joy is to bear fruit in us. And you have determined that that is to be our joy with you. For too long we've complained about the discomforts of the battle instead of rejoicing that the fruit will grow and win in us anyway. So we pray simply that you'd turn our hearts to match our belief. And that we would be those who bear your fruit no matter what. And give to us joy from it. Make it the chief joys of any that we might know. More than anything else that anyone else, anything else could offer us. Make our greatest joy. I have more of your heart, your mind, your essence, your life growing up out of us. Now we eat bread and drink wine, again to push away our own self-induced barrenness. We eat bread and drink wine to be reminded that Jesus has sown himself among us. And he means to bear fruit in us. And so we pray that you will work the gospel and all of its effects in us. We have heard your word, but our hearts are small and slow to believe. And bread and wine confirms to us all that you have spoken. So now, press us to give ourselves to a joyful abandonment to fruitfulness. And for all of these things, we will worship you and give you thanks. Now, church, along with the church in every age, what is it that you say you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, 
and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence He shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.